You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Today is part three in our, the final installment in our three-part series called Spiritual But Not Religious. Uh, I'm having a really good time talking about this with all of you, and I know a great conversation has happened uh, every week. Uh, That's really cool, too. And so um, the acronym for this, SBNR, it's important to know because I'm using it as kind of a shorthand in these talks. So when I say SBNR, I'm talking about spiritual but not religious. And this movement is based on this popular claim, for those of you unaware, that folks make today when they're asked what their religious affiliation is, many, perhaps 20% of the U.S. population will respond and say, I'm spiritual, but not religious, right? So that's where this this term, this movement comes from. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. Um, And it's an interesting topic for us to look at here at Central because I think Many of us, whether we know it or not, (laughs) find ourselves a part of this movement, even if we don't really like the phrase spiritual but not religious for various reasons. Um, And uh, I want to do a short five-minute recap here today of what we talked about last week, um, because a lot of you told me how much you liked it, (laughs) but I think it's also a really important we talked about a really important idea and concept that I want to continue to talk about here at Central and make Central to kind of, you know, the story that animates us here in our reconstruction. And it's this this story, this concept of connection, interconnectedness with all things, which I think is really not just physically true, uh, or consciously true, but even perhaps spiritually true. And so just want to do a short recap about this um, before we get into where I want to go today. And I began last week's talk by sharing a little story um, from when I was camping with my Uncle Jack. We were building a campfire, and as the wood lit, he told me that the flames were really just the sun's energy being released that was stored in the wood through the process of photosynthesis. That process of photosynthesis, of course, is the process by which plants and some bacteria uh, convert light energy into chemical energy, use it for food and to construct themselves, right? In other words, the light and the heat of the flames in our campfire was the same light and heat of the sun just stored in the wood. And I remember staring into the campfire that night, 30 years ago, and being amazed by that and kind of just contemplating that. And I've remembered it all these years because it's a great example. It's a powerful example, I think, of of the deep and wondrous connection that exists between everything. And I think there's something not just physically or scientifically true about that, but even Um, philosophically true, or perhaps even spiritually true about that. You see, it's not just the trees and the plants that are connected to the sun like this, but we are too, as we eat the plants and eat animals that eat the plants, right? Um, We're connected to the sun. It's not just the sun's energy that becomes our bodies and our minds, actually, but the rain and the oceans and the earth, the the, the soil, the the air we breathe, the sky, 
all becomes our bodies and our minds as well. We are literally stars. We are literally the rain. We are literally the oceans. We are the earth. We are the sky and the air. I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean that literally. That's just physics, chemistry, and biology, which is to say that we are connected to everything. Not just physically, I suspect, but consciously too. In other words, the same atoms and molecules that, that make up my body and brain are also found in the trees and the rocks and the stars and other, other living things. And in the same way that that's true, so I suspect that my consciousness and my mind and, and your consciousness and your mind is also part of a cosmic consciousness and a cosmic mind that we approximate with words like God the absolute, ultimate reality, the source, the one, Brahman, etc. I may be wrong about all that. <laughs> that should really be written on the walls up here. I may be wrong, but sort of the slogan that we should always keep in mind, right? Every Everything I say says needs says uh, everything I say needs to be prefaced with this, right? I may be wrong, but that's where I lean. That's where I'm at, and it's where an increasing number of, dare I say, scientists, academics, thinkers, and also those who call them call themselves SBNRs are at. Because thinking along these lines of interconnectedness and mutuality on a cosmic scale is a big part of what I think it means to be spiritual but not religious. And I think this story constitutes, and this is why it's so important to me to reiterate this this morning, I think this story, and it is a story, story of interconnection, I think it constitutes a new Meta-narrative, there's a word for it. What does meta-narrative mean? Well, grand overarching story that defines reality for us, that, that gives us a sense of meaning, that gives us a sense of grounding, that gives us you know, something to build community around. I, I think this story does that in ways that, frankly, conservative religion could never do, and in ways that reductive materialism could never do. Reductive materialism, meaning um, this, this kind of atheistic, scientific way of looking at the world that says everything is just particles and there's nothing transcendent or immaterial going on. It's all just stuff, cold, dead, mindless stuff. And therefore, you, your, what you call your life, your mind, your consciousness, it's really just nothing. I think this story of interconnectedness in the, in the mysticism, if I can put it that way, that lies at the heart of that story, is a better story than what conservative religion on one extreme gives us and what reductive materialism, the story that reductive materialism tells us at the other extreme. And we need such a new story. I think, I think we need it. We need a new, a new grand story because as humans, we need such stories to give, our, give ourselves a sense of meaning and grounding in the world. And I think such stories give us a sense of transcendence, a sense of being a part of something much bigger than ourselves and a, and a framework to think about how we are to live. 
which is to say that the story, I think, comes with profound moral and spiritual implications. It, it teaches us mutual care and concern, the story of, of interconnectedness on a cosmic scale teaches us mutual care and concern, teaches us to love and, and to value others and to pursue justice and equity because we are all connected. And this story holds ecological implications too, right? Because if we are connected to the animals and to the environment and we are that and they are us, then we're going to care about that as a way of caring about ourselves. It's all a part of us and we are a part of it. And that intrinsically, I think, lends itself to love and, and compassion and care and mutuality and solidarity. How could it not? This story also gives us a deep sense of transcendence, a sense that we are a part of a profound mystery and a wondrous mystery, which is to say that the story affirms a kind of horizontal transcendence rather than a vertical transcendence. And we talked about this a little bit last week. Bears repeating. What do I mean? Well, a vertical transcendence is that common idea that we find in religion, that God, the divine, the holy is somewhere up there beyond. And the whole point of existence is to you know, get to heaven one day and to leave this crummy world behind, right? This is just a testing center, this world. It's a proving ground to see who's heaven material, right? That's, that's the vertical transcendence idea. You've got to somehow get up there. That's where God is. But a horizontal transcendence is this thinking that God, the holy, the sacred, the divine, permeates this world, this reality, this life, our bodies, our minds, all of creation reverberates with God, the absolute, ultimate reality. And you don't have to go looking for it. It's right here, right now, always. You don't have to come to church to connect with God because God is everywhere. That's a kind of horizontal transcendence. And again, it teaches us to really value life and value the world and each other. Because God is your neighbor in need. That's just Matthew 25. Jesus says, I was the hungry person you fed. I was the thirsty person you gave water to. I was the stranger you welcomed. That was me, God. That's horizontal transcendence. And for me, this is where a lot of reconstruction can happen for us deconstructed post-evangelicals, right? The story of cosmic interconnectedness and transcendence found in the experience of being, living, and loving. That's, that's a vision of reconstruction, I believe. Perhaps, in, in, my, in my estimation, the best vision of it. I think reconstruction is really about learning to tell new stories, bigger stories and better stories than the ones we were given, both by conservative religion and reductive materialism, which are both pretty narrow-minded stories on opposite ends of the theological spectrum. One is dogmatically theistic, the other is dogmatically atheistic, right? But neither takes seriously the rich complexity of the human experience and the mystery of it all. And understanding that, I think, is a big part 
of what it means to be SBNR. Okay, so that's a quick recap. Well, not a very quick recap <laughs> of last week, but I really felt that it was important to reiterate because there's a lot going on there and it's a really powerful story. And it sets the foundation for where I want to take things this morning, which is to look at how all of this jives with religion and particularly Christianity, which is the religious tradition that most of us find ourselves a part of here at Central. And you may be saying to yourself right now, well, What's the point of showing how Christianity, or any religion for that matter, meshes or harmonizes with what it means to be SBNR? Doesn't being SBNR mean that we've left religion behind? What's the point? Doesn't SBNR mean that we no longer participate in religion or think in religious terms at all? And to a degree, that, that's true. That can be the case. But I also think that even modern concepts of spirituality are usually, not always, but usually contingent upon and derived from ideas and language that we've inherited from our various religious and spiritual traditions that are found in the world. In other words, even though I think people have unique spiritual experiences and can understand them in non-religious ways, I think they often do understand them and describe them in ways that unknowingly borrow ideas and concepts and vocabulary from religion. In other words, it's difficult to be purely spiritual and not religious because the concepts of spirituality that we have to work with in our culture are mostly derived from religion, whether we know it or not. For example, Consider how many SBNRs today are really into yoga and meditation, and that's awesome. But as if yoga and meditation are like the pure non-religious way to be spiritual. And yet meditation and yoga actually come from Buddhism and, and Hinduism, which are ancient, complex, and, and rich spiritual and religious traditions in their own right. Even the practice of mindfulness which is also seen today as a totally secular practice, is also directly derived from both Hinduism and Buddhism, and is thereby not actually, mindfulness is not actually in its roots, secular or non-religious in nature. The fact is we are all immersed in communities and cultures that are themselves saturated with ideas and language that originate from within a a host of different religions that have been shaping and informing our culture forever and in a myriad of ways. The idea that one could just remove themselves, extricate themselves from all that and be purely spiritual in a totally new and original way that doesn't borrow anything from religion <laughs> strikes me as really unlikely. Part of what I'm saying is that the terms spiritual and religious are really kind of a false distinction. When, when we say I'm spiritual but not religious, this is just a different way to be religious. And we're borrowing ideas and concepts from religion, often without even knowing it. Much of what passes for religionless spirituality today is not nearly as religionless as we'd like to think. Therefore, religion can actually be very helpful in making us 
spiritual, but not religious, if you will. And Christianity is no exception to this. Consider the Apostle Paul's words in Acts 17, where he was debating with the philosophers and the metaphysicians of Athens one day. And he agreed with them. And he said this, your own poets and philosophers are correct in saying that in God, we live and move and have our being. In God, we live and move and have our being. In other words, God is the ground of being. God is the foundation. We would, to put it in technical terms, God is the ontological and cosmological foundation from which all things emerge. This was basically ancient Greek philosophy 101, which was Plato's philosophy and Plato's metaphysics from 500 years before. But it became a core idea of first century Christianity. And it was expanded upon in the Middle Ages by the church then and became known as Neoplatonism, which is this, this idea that all things emerge from the one and will return to the one, the source, the absolute, or what many call God. This was Christian, this was Orthodox Christianity. Today we call this pantheism or panentheism, which means God is all, that's pantheism, or all is inside of God, that's panentheism. But these were originally Greek ideas that became Christian ideas that we just take for granted or that we've lost. You probably have never heard this preached on on a Sunday morning in church, right? I didn't grow up hearing this stuff. I should have. That's why I share it with you. But again, this was not just ancient Greek metaphysics and ancient Greek philosophy, but it was also ancient Christianity. And it's actually an idea found in a variety of world religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and a variety of shamanic and indigenous religions. Because I think it's, it's based on this, this innate, intuitive, human sense that we are all connected, that everything is connected and we're part of some great cosmic whole. That's where these ideas come from. It's innate. It's intuitive, I think, to our species. We're conscious, we're aware, and we see all around us the cycle of life and how connected everything is. How could we not sense that there's some kind of great cosmic whole and that everything is a part of the same system? And it's, it's not a far jump from that. It's not a, even a jump. It's a, it's, not a, it's a small step to go from that to thinking that there's mind and there's consciousness behind all of this. That becomes sort of the foundation or the catalyst for all forms of spirituality and, and religion. It's born out of that intuitive, innate understanding and awareness that we're all connected and everything's part of a cosmic whole. That's where all this comes from, I think. And yeah, that's mystical. Mysticism's about thinking in terms of the one and how everything is part of the one, including us. And perhaps the idea in Christianity that really exemplifies this idea of our connection to the divine and all things connection to the divine is the incarnation. Meaning the, the incarnation of God in Christ. 
this idea of God becoming human and thereby revealing that the human is divine. This idea so inspired the early medieval church that Athanasius, there's a name you probably haven't heard before, Athanasius, a great fourth century church bishop, Eastern church bishop, Constantinople, said this, God became man so that man might become God. God became human so that humanity might become God. That was orthodoxy. Nowadays, you hear that, evangelicals freak out. Oh, that's heresy. It's progressive, woke nonsense, new age nonsense. No, that, that was orthodoxy. That was, that was early Christian orthodoxy. Other Christian mystics and theologians over the centuries picked up on this theme too, like Meister Eckhart in the 14th century, who said, the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, and one love, end quote. Here we see how this idea of God's oneness with us and God's oneness with her own creation is a deeply Christian idea. Consider also the meaning of the Lord's Supper, which is something we do here weekly. When Jesus took the bread and the wine, we're told he said, this is my body and this is my blood. To say that bread and wine are now somehow God's presence among us is to say that all of creation, from grapes to grain, to creatures like us, we are creatures, we are animals, that all of this has been revealed as earthen vessels, earthen vessels of the divine, the holy, the sacred, the one, the spirit. God's spirit, we're told, has been poured out in the world. That's another Christian idea, Pentecost. God's spirit has been poured out, emptied out into the world and knows no bounds. This is the meaning of Pentecost. It's not just that we have become temples of the Holy Spirit or the body of Christ, but all of creation itself is now endowed with the spirit or is revealed to have always been endowed and the abode of God. This is how Christianity gets SBNR really fast. You see this? And I want to finish by just pointing out how Jesus's critique of religion was really SBNR for his day too. We all know that Jesus confronted the religious authorities of his day for the ways in which they made religion oppressive, and more about a system of rules and customs rather than a way of living out of virtues like love and compassion and justice and affirming the, the full humanity and the full dignity of all, regardless of race and gender or creed, regardless if they're Jew or Samaritan or Gentile. This is what Jesus was all about. And this is what he thought his religion was all about. Judaism. And he was part of a long line of Hebrew prophets that came before who thought likewise. Just read the Old Testament, read Isaiah, read Micah, read Amos. 
But Jesus's deconstruction, I am using that word for what Jesus was up to. Jesus's deconstruction or critique of his religion was carried out, carried on, and further developed in the early church and reached a, a climax in what became known as the circumcision controversy. The circumcision controversy was over whether or not non-Jews men, non-Jewish men coming into the church needed to be circumcised and observe other aspects of Jewish religious customs. Some early Jewish Christians like Peter believed, yes, they need to become Jewish in order to become Christian. <laughs> because after all, Christianity at that time was a Jewish sect. It wasn't its own thing yet. It was eventually decided, though, that no, no, you didn't need to convert to Judaism to become a Christian, and that the so-called eternal right of circumcision, that's how big of a deal it was, it was called an eternal right, the so-called eternal right of circumcision, along with keeping kosher and Sabbath observance and other aspects of the Mosaic law, these things were now spiritualized. Hear that? First century church came to believe that all of that, those religious customs were now spiritualized into leading Christ-like lives of love and justice. I mean, that's pretty SBNR. When Paul said in Romans, love fulfills the law, and when James writes in chapter 1, verse 27 of his epistle, pure and undefiled religion is this, to care for the widow and the orphan, or when John writes in 1 John 4, God is love, and anyone who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in them. This was as SBNR as SBNR gets. In this way, Christianity from its very beginning represented not just the end of one circumcision question. Christianity represented the deconstruction or the end of all circumcision questions, meaning the end of all questions like what religious rules, what religious beliefs or customs must one follow to be a child of God or connected to God. Christianity was about the end of all those questions. The great insight, the original insight and the original liberating idea of Christianity, one of the major ones was that such questions were non-starters. Christ has liberated us from the law, from those, from religious law, into love and justice itself, into living and being and loving itself, which makes Christianity pretty SBNR. And many Christians have picked up on this over the centuries. And we so-called progressive, woke, post-evangelicals are just the latest iteration of that story, which makes us pretty SBNR, in my opinion. Maybe, maybe it, it, it takes being a little religious to really be SBNR, to really dig into it. You know, in the same way, to really be an atheist, you got to study theism. <laughs> the best atheists are those who really know their theism, you know? There's, some, there's a dialectical relationship there. In any event, that's my talk for today. And uh, we've already done the Lord's Supper. So every week here at Central, for those of you who are new, don't want to freak you out, but we have a conversation, a little dialogue where you get to question the pastor. How radical is that? You get to be like, excuse me, I don't agree with what you said. Um, or most of the time, 
is just comments. You know, that's cool. Um, but yeah, Steve, you want to go first? And um, hey, Bob, is is Karen um, up there today? She is not. Okay. She asked a question last week that I wanted to answer today, but if she's not there, I'll wait on it. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I've really appreciated the series. Uh, it's really helped sort of codify or define the SBNR idea, which was always just this amorphous thing to me. Um, I I'm curious about how you would parse out the difference between how you're viewing SBNR and the idea of just like mysticism in religion and how those things, because a lot of the definitions sort of when you're, it's like, well, yeah, that's, those are sort of the mystical sides of uh, Christian history that we talk about, or that's sort of Christian mysticism. And would you, is that an, a very overlapping Venn diagram or is that just a circle and we're kind of using different words or yeah, how would you? Think that's a really that? good question. And frankly, I'd love to hear how you would do that. <laughs> Um, but you kind of already did in a way, X, I'm agreeing with you. I think those, those circles really overlap. Uh, and I, I think historically they do. If you, if you look at it, like I said, like Meister Eckhart or, you know, Athanasius and Athanasius probably wasn't, what he said was pretty aspirated, but Meister Eckhart and some of the medieval mystics in the 13th and 14th century, Marguerite Perrette, um, and some others, uh, who were labeled mystics were basically just saying, let's just talk about how God is love. I mean, that was Marguerite Perrette. And she, they burned her at the stake for it, for, for saying there's a big church and a, and a little church. This was her idea, her language. There's a big church and a little church. The big church is, is all, those who, all, all those who love, all those who, who are orientating their life towards love and justice and who care about others. That's the big church. The little church is the ones with the doctrines and the creeds and the sacraments and the priests and the bishops and the offertories and the pews, the cathedrals. That's the little church. She, she was talking about love, pure love, that this is God. And they lit her up for it. Yeah. So, I mean, but that was, that was spiritual, but not religious, she was saying. Well, that's the language we would use. So there's, there's a big overlap there. Yeah, I guess you could say, you know, when you look at uh, mysticism and Christianity, because it's a broad category, there's there's more uh, parochial understandings of you know mysticism and that are hold some actual like pretty you know orthodox confessional creedal <laughs> beliefs about God that are very intrinsic to just Christianity and if if you look at um, Islam uh, what's the mystical tradition in Islam the the Sufi, Sufi. Sufi. the Sufis yeah right did I get the word right yeah um, I, I, they they probably hold idea their mysticism is also very Islamic probably but yet you notice every seen the whirling dervishes who are who are Sufis, right? These um, it, uh, Muslim mystics, when they do the whirling, they're holding one hand up like this towards heaven, and the other hand down here to the earth. And the meaning behind that is that they're saying, as above, so below, that there is no disconnect between heaven and earth. And that, of course, is mysticism. That connection, the, the whole idea of everything is one. So even in even in that is meant to be very open. Yeah. So we might. Another term for the SBNR just might be sort of open mysticism. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think I think openness is a great word for what it means to be SBNR. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions, remarks, disagreements? Yeah, Marsha. Yeah. Yeah. They never fall over those whirling dervishes. They get a lot of practice. And the spinning is actually, my understanding, is meant to bring them into a kind of trance-like state, an altered state of consciousness. And that's, 
yeah, it's, that is, you know, I think as, you know, SBNRs or, or progressive Christians or non, whatever you call yourself, I, I just want to affirm that there's so many ways I think of connecting with the divine and that I'm not recommending you go home and you spin yourself into a trance, but that's cool. I don't know. That's cool. And let's, let's affirm that as a being a way of, you know, getting in touch with, you know, the transcendent, the other, you know, I, I want to affirm that. That's cool. All right. Somebody else. Last day of the series, last last day we can ever talk about espionage. <laughs> you can't talk about what it means to be spiritual after today. Okay, Marsha, yeah, go ahead. Will I try? I still like the word God. That's a great question. Um you know, I realize the word comes with a lot of baggage. And some days I don't like the word. Let's be clear about that. Some, sometimes I'm like, gosh, word God really bothers me. God, that word God bothers me. Yeah. Um, um, but it's a shorthand. It's a shorthand for, for the ineffable. Ineffable meaning what we don't have vocabulary for, right? And I want to talk about the things we don't have words for. That's the trouble, right? That's what we want to foster here. We want to talk about the things we, we basically can't talk about. That's really the task of theology and spirituality and religion in its depths, I think, in its most meaningful aspects. It is to, an attempt to talk about the ineffable, the transcendent, that which we don't have language for, but that which we all sense. You know what I mean? It's like art. When you're looking at a painting, you try to put to words what you're experiencing, right? You're looking at a beautiful painting where or you're looking, listen to a piece of music that you're moved to tears, but you can't put the words. Why? That's the depth dimension of life. That's the depth dimension of spirituality. And that's what I want to foster here at Central. And I think, you know, that, I don't know, that's everything. But yeah, I use the word God and I like the word God sometimes. And, uh, I think I think a lot of folks who come to the doors, especially that are new, appreciate <laughs> us still using language that works for them, so it's not so alienating. You know, this place is alienating enough. I mean, uh, <laughs> I don't mean it like that, but you you know what I mean. I hope. All right, other thoughts, remarks, um, Vitaly, Steve, would you mind? Thank you. Yeah, I want if you're comfortable using the mic. I, I want you to use it just for the sake of the podcast because this is recorded and put up as a podcast, but also for those who are on Zoom. Otherwise, they can't hear the questions. So when you have background and you become... Say that again. So when I have what? Uh, like when you're coming from the Christian background and you still identify as a Christian, but you become more and more SBNR. How do you relate to the Bible? Like, how do you see yeah. the Bible? I'm curious, what is your intake? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Well, somebody say something. How much time do we have? Well, we try to end at 1130. So we got we got 11 minutes. Um, you know, uh, oh, my gosh, there's so much I want to say. And where do I start? Um, I've, I've used a metaphor, an analogy before um, to describe how I look at the Bible now. Um, think of Picasso. Right, the great artist Picasso, doing a painting, right, and he's working really hard at it, and he and he likes it, but then he makes some mistakes on it, and he grows to hate it, and so one day he just flicks his cigarette at it, 
I don't know if he smoked, flicks his cigarette at it and it like burns a little hole. He takes his glass of wine and he throws it at it, destroys it essentially, but takes the canvas, throws it in the back room somewhere. 50 years later, somebody's going through his estate, finds that painting, wine stained, paint running down, cigarette hole. My guess is that painting would sell for as much or more than any of his others. I don't know. I'm not an art historian. I'm just go with me here in the metaphor, okay? My guess is that painting would be of enormous value because it reveals like the true heart of the artist, right? It reveals like the, 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 the creative chaos that is found in what it means to be an artist, someone who's pursuing something passionately, so passionately that he like makes mistakes and throws his wine at it. You know, there's something beautiful and awe-inspiring about that, right? I think of the Bible like that. It's not perfect. It's a work of human hands but it's full of passion and it's, and it's full of the desire, the human desire to seek God, to connect with what we can't describe. And, and the Bible is beautiful that way to me still. It's deeply meaningful. It is, you know, I, I'm a Christian because I was born a Christian. I'm a Van Voris because that was the last name I was given at birth. And there's some really cool things about being a Van Voris. There's a little cabin in the woods in Western New York state there's a farm. And growing up, I used to go out there every year and camp out. And I talked about this this morning, I used to camp out there. And one of the traditions we had as a family was every Sunday night, when we'd go out there and camp, we'd have a huge family dinner in that crappy old cabin around a big table that my grandfather built. That's what it meant to be a Van Voris. Your last name's Graven, right? Well, it's probably not what it means to be a Graven. It doesn't mean that your traditions are any worse than mine or any better than mine. Or, you know, but that's beautiful. Tradi the traditions are beautiful and they're meaningful. They don't have to be shared by everybody, but it's beautiful. The Bible is what I was given. It's what I, was, what I inherited. And for, and for that reason alone, and because it's imperfect and human, but full of the passionate pursuit of the divine, I, I still find it, I find it deeply meaningful. Perhaps even more so now that I know more about it and all of its imperfections. I think it's even more beautiful, meaningful now, maybe. Oh, that's that's the best I can do this morning. Yeah, um, Jen. Um, when I was part of the Methodist Church, kind of in the context, this was kind of in the context of like the LGBT um, question, um, but it was in relation to the Bible, how it was kind of like explained, which I think is really good, is that you can kind of take the Bible and put it in different buckets and like the first bucket is uh the, and the largest one is the verses where a lot of the verses are metaphorical there's me, some me, there we me, go go ahead there's some that were applicable to like a very specific in time place in time and then there's other yeah i'm gonna give you this mic i want people to hear you let me give you this mic <laughs> okay thanks and then the, there was others that never reflected the heart and character of God, even at that time. So I, you know, I think, I think in general, that's been a really helpful kind of idea for me to, cause there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that is like messed up <laughs> as we know. <laughs> so, um, as we kind of go down this SBNR road, I think that's a helpful, can be a helpful way to think about it. 
got it handled. Um, no, I think that I was going to spin off on that as well, because I feel like for me, growing up in a church where the Bible was literal, and that's how you had to take it, if you were a real Christian, um, that was really hard for me because I was like, okay, but this contradicts that and that kind of, you know, there were just too many contradictions for me to be like, okay, well, let's just do this. Well, you know, finding later, I think the one thing that helped my mind to wrap around it was the metaphor of this is my body. This is my blood. It's not literally his body, literally his blood. Therefore, you can't then say everything in the Bible is literal because there's that's a metaphor right there. It's in the Bible. So for me, I was like, oh, well, that was a bomb drop because I was like, wow, all the other things that are, you know, crazier people think are crazy. So, you know, they're meant to help. They're meant to, you know, teach something. They're meant to provoke thought, even though the religion that you probably came from told you don't go outside of that one line and only interpret the way that your pastor interpreted it. Um, but yeah, it just ended up sort of opening everything for me. Though I will tell you, I have not picked up my Bible since I started this church. But <laughs> but um, I think it's because I have to sort of reel it back and then look at it from a different approach. And I'm just not ready to do that. I would rather have these discussions with real people who have a similar past with religion to sort of like, I feel like I'm still in the recovery process rather than like the uh, application process. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think a lot of people here identify with that completely. <laughs> Good stuff. Anybody else this morning? All right. Well, great conversations. Um, kind of don't want the series to end, but uh, I feel like we kind of exhausted the topic. It kind of doesn't end because we're always talking about what it means to be spiritual and not not religious, but religious and also not spiritual. So it you know works both ways. Anyway. Um, let us conclude our time together here by saying um, our weekly benediction together. And this is just a, a collect, a way of centering ourselves, coming back together here at the end um, and ending on, on, I think, a really positive note. Let's say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thanks for being here, everybody. Thanks for dialoguing, and we'll see you again real soon.